Grab your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 11. As we've mentioned and as you've seen today, it's Palm Sunday. On this day, almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus entered triumphantly into Jerusalem. He paraded down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and up into the old city. A crowd of people walked in front of him. A crowd of people walked behind him. A basic reading of these 11 verses would suggest to us that this is the pinnacle of pure faith from these people following Jesus along this road. But as we read the rest of Mark's gospel, we recognize that that can't be the case because there's a shift in the crowd. A crowd surrounds Jesus as he enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, but a crowd also surrounds Jesus as he teaches in the temple later this week. A crowd surrounds Jesus as they come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. A crowd surrounds Jesus as he's sentenced and they yell, crucify, crucify. There's a change in the crowd. So we know, as you can see in your listening guide today, there is a shadow of misunderstanding hanging over Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This crowd misunderstands what's happening. And the question I want to search us this morning, are we misunderstanding too? Misunderstandings can be costly. In 1999, NASA decided it wanted to send up an orbiter to revolve around Mars so they could learn information about it. So they contracted Lockheed Martin to actually build the orbiter. Lockheed began to build using our English measurement system. But as NASA was planning the trajectory and the launch and the orbit, it used the metric system. So when that orbiter launched into space, it just kept going into space deeper and deeper and deeper to the tune of a loss of hundreds of millions of dollars. No offense to any of you rocket scientists. (laughs) Misunderstandings can be costly. And if we misunderstand Jesus' triumphal entry, it will be costly to our faith as well. You can see in your listening guide, there are three C's that will guide our understanding of his entry. The cult, the cloaks, and the celebration. First, the cult. Verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, it will find, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? untying this colt. And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Now, how did Jesus know about the colt? Two possibilities. First, he knew about it through natural knowledge. This was not the first time that he had passed through these villages on that side of the Mount of Olives. Maybe the last time he was passing through, he saw the colt in a pen tied up somewhere. Maybe he was familiar with its owners, they were friends, maybe even potentially disciples. Or it could be that he knew through supernatural knowledge, the Father revealing it to him through the Spirit. It's clear, however he knew about it, that he's making a statement. Remember, Jesus has walked everywhere for the last three years. He's even walked on water. So why now, in a relatively very short distance compared to the other journeys he's made, would he choose to ride an animal? Because he was fulfilling messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. For example, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now here's where the misunderstanding comes in. Because the crowd, like us, sees what it wants to see and hears what it wants to hear. In your listening guide, they misunderstand because they believe Jesus is arriving to take down the government. Let's not forget that Israel at this time had considered themselves captive for the last 750 years. 750 BC, the nation of Assyria comes and captures the northern half of Israel. A hundred years later, the Babylonians do the same to the southern half. And from that time on, the Jewish people were handed down from one empire to another as each conquered and was conquered. Also, we have to remember that Jesus is not the only one entering Jerusalem on this day. Throngs of people had come to that city to celebrate the Passover holiday. And what was the Passover about? It was a celebration of God delivering Israel from its captors. Freedom, government, release. These words were on everyone's mind. And now they're seeing Jesus up on that colt, fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies they were familiar with. It could mean only one thing. Jesus is arriving to take down the Roman Empire. The truth in your listening guide, Jesus is not arriving to take down a government. He is arriving to take up a cross. Most biblical historians believe that Mark's gospel was written to some of the first Christians in the city of Rome. Those Roman Christians would have been very familiar with triumphal entries. Every Roman general who had won in war would march into that city with pomp and circumstance. circumstance. Upon horses, not colts, swords held high with soldiers and prisoners of war in tow. Jesus' entry is contrast to that. He arrives as the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet predicted, as a prince of peace with humility. His mission was not to take down, but to take up. His reign does not begin with a coronation, but with a cross. It's ironic that Jesus' greatest victory actually looks like defeat. On this day, on Sunday, he arrives with great jubilee into Jerusalem. Triumphantly, he proceeds in. But in just five days, he will be led out by Roman soldiers and mockers carrying a cross up a hill called Golgotha. Do you remember what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, when he said, I have finished the race? Now, I am not a runner. I don't pretend to be a runner. And honestly, I don't even aspire to be a runner. So I, I know that disappoints some of you, which, because you have unlocked the key to life, and that is running. <laughs> you look great doing it, but I am not that interested. But there was a time in my life when I found myself on a track team, and our coach in order to help us run and to help us win, would break down our races into segments, usually four different segments. So my event, for example, the 400 meters, was broken up into four segments of 100 meters each. And he would instruct us in what to do in each segment. But the goal was always to win the race and not win the segment. Winning the segment was not the purpose. Our culture coaches us the opposite. It says to us, win the segment. 
It says to us, win college with good grades, good friends, a good future. It says to us, win your 20s with a great career, a great spouse, and a great starter home. It says, win your 30s and 40s with superior income, superior children, in superior schools. It says, win your 50s and 60s by having been so superior in your 30s and 40s that you can relax and begin to retire. But the cross... And the last week of Jesus tells us that God doesn't emphasize the segments. The segments come together to form a race. The triumphal entry is connected to the teaching in the temple, which is connected to the Last Supper with the disciples, which is connected to the prayer in the garden, which is connected to the arrest and the sentencing and the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's the full race that he wants you to win. You may feel defeated today because it looks like you're losing the segment compared to your friends and Instagram friends. But it's the race he wants us to win because he comes on a colt and not on a horse. The colt, the second C in your listening guide, the cloaks. Verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now there was precedent for picking up your coat and laying it down for a future king to cross over. In the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Yehu is king. This had happened already. They weren't just randomly taking off their coats and lying them on the ground for Jesus to cross over. They were intentionally reaching back into an event into their history where someone became king. There was also precedent for picking up palm branches branches and waving them in honor 150 years earlier. Jerusalem had done the same thing for a man named Simon Maccabees because for a brief moment he had set Israel free from its oppressors. But again, the shadow of misunderstanding is hanging over this event. What the crowd was saying in your listening guide, Jesus, you are worthy of my support. I lay down my coat. I wave my palm branch. I support you, Jesus, and your claim for leadership of Israel. But followers of Jesus are demanded that they commit much more than that. The truth, Jesus, you are worthy of my life not just my support. What's the difference between offering support and offering my life? You lend support. You sacrifice your life. The owners lent the colt to Jesus, and he said, I'll return it immediately. They lent their cloaks for him to pass over, and as he did, they picked them back up and put them on. After Amanda and I were married and I graduated from college, we moved to England for a five-month ministry assignment there. And Before we left, I sold my car. I didn't make a lot of money because it was pretty terrible and old. 
After our assignment there was over, I was in the process of taking a new job, but we had about a month where I was jobless and living in transition, and so Amanda's parents let me borrow one of their old cars. It was about a 15-year-old Lexus, and it had aged pretty well, and it was definitely the nicest car that I had ever driven before. Amanda was working full-time, but again, I was in a transitional moment from job to job, and so I made it my full-time vocation to keep that car clean. Every day, literally, not preacher exaggeration, I took it to the car wash. If it got one speck of dust in it, I would detail the whole thing. I spent every dime of our disposable income in that month making sure this car looked great. I only had it for a month and yet replaced the radio. I still think about it sometimes. (laughs) But you know how this story ends. There came a moment when I had to give it back. Because that's what you do with something that you borrow. You give it back. That's what happens when you lend something. You eventually take it back. We Christians, we offer Jesus our support by lending him a lot of different things. We lend him our Sundays. But we know if we're real tired, we can take it back. We lend him our tithes and offerings. But if things get a little tight, we'll just take it back. We lend him our will by obeying a commandment or two. But what does it look like to sacrifice my life? It's the difference between a blank check and one with a dollar amount written in it. Many of us are saying, Jesus, you can have this much. And it's more than what I offered you last year. It's more than what I offered you two years ago. You can have this much. But to sacrifice your life is to say, Jesus, you can have everything. There is no limit. There is nothing off limits. Jesus, you are worthy of my life. This is what he meant in Luke chapter 9, verse 27, when he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would raise their hand and say, I want to follow, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus took up his own cross for the sacrifice of his life, for the forgiveness of our sins. The cross was not a show of support to you and I. It was a sacrifice of his life. And now he asks us to do the same cult, the cloaks, and finally the celebration. Verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. One group went before Jesus and another followed behind. It's believed the two groups were doing call and response with the first group shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which meant as an exclamation of praise, God, you are saving us right now. Hosanna. And then the group behind Jesus would quote Psalm 118, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Both are anchored there. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord, in Psalm 118. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. But look closely at verse 10. It says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. 
Now, Jesus had lots to say about the coming kingdom, but it was always the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never talked about the kingdom of their father, David. Again, this is the sign that they misunderstood what was happening. They saw what they wanted to see and they heard what they wanted to hear. They believed with the snap of the fingers, a march into Jerusalem, that the good old days of King David would now return to them. And you're listening, guys, to to the misunderstanding crowd, being blessed, meant to take hold of easily. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. He's fulfilling these prophetic prophecies. He has God's support. The Roman Empire will fall because God has blessed him. I fall into that trap too. To be blessed means I get what I want with minimal struggle. That's how you know you're blessed. Minimal struggle and you get what you want. You got that job at the first place you applied. Hashtag blessed. You got pregnant the first time that you tried. Blessed. Your kids were accepted to their top choice college. Didn't even need a safety school. Blessed. And they got a full academic scholarship. Double blessed. (laughs) To be blessed means I get what I want with minimal effort. The problem? That definition couldn't apply to Jesus. To get what he wanted took maximum effort. He persevered the unbelieving crowds. He washed his disciples' dirty feet. He prayed so hard and with such agony in the Garden of Gethsemane that he literally sweated drops of blood. He was arrested by a mob who came at him with weapons. He was falsely accused and unjustly convicted. He was whipped by professional soldiers with leather straps and at the ends, shards of glass and metal and bone. Then they strapped a wooden beam to his back and made him carry it all the way up to the place that he would die. Maximum effort. The truth, though, to be blessed means to be committed to God's will. Remember where all this started? Back in Nazareth, when the angel Gabriel appeared to a young woman named Mary and delivered the news to her that she would bear in her own body the very Son of God. This is what Gabriel said to her out of the King James Version. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And her response shows her commitment to God's will when she says, let it be done to me according to your word. We can't toss around the word blessed without thinking of the Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Not one of these can be practiced with minimal struggle. Jesus himself showed his commitment to God's will in the garden when he said, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Like the crowd surrounding Jesus, we misunderstand what it means to be blessed. We've been searching for God's favor along easy street. The reality is, is he is hidden his highest favor, his greatest blessing along this narrow road that few will find. What great news today that many of us haven't even begun to be blessed. Are we misunderstanding too? Because that misunderstanding could be costly. Do we understand that Jesus has taken up a cross and asks us to take one up too? Do we understand that he asks us not for our support today, but for our very lives? And do we understand that we are blessed by maximum effort and commitment to God's will? So God, we pray that we would not misunderstand these things like the crowd that went before and the crowd that followed behind. Give us a heart to understand by faith if not by sight. In the spirit of prayer, why don't you take just a second and ask God directly. It's a great thing about him. No person is your mediator. You can speak directly to him. God, in light of all we've sung today and all we've read and all we've heard and all we've seen, what do you want me to do next? of your word and not hearers only today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Why don't you stand?